please be aware that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only. The information on this podcast should not be used as a substitute to medical advice or medical treatment. As always, your primary care provider, a doctor, or another health professional is your best resource for specific questions and medical advice. If you believe you or a loved one are experiencing a medical emergency, please contact 911. This is a continuation of the previous episode where I was also interviewing Kim, the midwife. Please listen to that episode first to hear the first part of the interview. Have you attended many home births or water births? Yes. Um, So my first midwifery placement was in Brantford. They have a fairly high home birth rate. I'd say Mm -hmm. probably around 50 to 60% of the births I attended were at home. Wow. Um, Which compared to, you know, some of the other jurisdictions in Ontario is is a massive amount of home births. Like to graduate from the ME, from the midwifery education program and register with the college, you have to have attended a certain number of home births so that, you know, we can prove competency. Of course, um, yeah. And I essentially came out of my first midwifery placement, I think one birth short of my home birth numbers, whereas, you know, people in other areas were you know, trying desperately to get their last three or four home births in some of the locations at the end of school. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I have attended tons of home births. And I, I kind of lump birth center births into that as well. Um, yeah, because they're different than yeah. hospital. It's different from hospital. It's different from home. Um, but it's 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 kind of it's kind of a nice middle ground. So yeah, lots of out of hospital birth. And in doing that, lots of water birth. Uh, most hospitals have, you know, kind of anti-water birth policies. So most, many people who want to labor or give birth outside of a hospital um, have water as an option. Yeah. Um, and lots of people avail themselves of it because it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so about the hospitals being anti-water birth, uh, and I've had other people talk about this before like guests that I've had on just wondering why is that do you know (laughs) I can only guess right yeah I I don't know I think I want to say we don't have robust evidence but we do (laughs) um (laughs) right so I don't know if it's you know fear of things going wrong fear of litigation I will say that many people who give birth in the water give birth in positions that are not convenient for a care provider. (laughs) Um, Yes. So that could be a big factor. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, a big factor because, you know, if I've got four clients a month or five clients a month and each one of them gives birth in a tub, that's, you know, four or five births that I have to contort my body for. (laughs) But if I'm catching five babies a night, all in different positions (laughs) it would ruin it would ruin you you know like you'd be you'd be in pain oh yeah (laughs) um so i i I highly doubt that's why (laughs) but uh it could be contributing though it could be i mean it's also hard to get the number of people that you know there's often at a birth in a hospital in a tiny bathroom you know and I understand people's thinking that a baby being born underwater can't be safe. Like I totally get it. And I understand from like a hospital perspective that they're, that that would make them uncomfortable. (laughs) 
Yeah, I get it. Well, and it's, I mean, we do know, you know, the evidence of water birth does show us that one minute APGAR scores um, for babies are lower Mm -hmm. when they're born in the water, um, you know, across a population wide. Um, But that five minute APGAR scores, which are really like a good predictor of baby's health at birth or baby's wellness at birth, five minute APGAR scores are the same. So I, we often, you know, I always told people planning to give birth in the water that your baby is, is going to take a little bit longer to come around. And that's because it's such a gentle transition. So when we give birth on land, right, baby goes from inside the body to the air and they're wet and it's cold. (laughs) All right. And then they've got, you know, they're often being, they're being born into hands and then they're being put up on a, a belly and then because they're wet and we don't want them to get cold, we have to dry them off, right? So they're getting rubbed with all these, you know, blankets that aren't always the softest. No, those hospital bit, blankets like, are can, Right, horrible. I can only imagine what that's like for a baby. Like, what just happened? Who are these people? Why are they rubbing me? Like, what, what just happened? <laughs> Whereas when they're born in the water, uh, you know, midwives always make sure the water temperature is around body temperature. So you don't want it cold. You don't want it hot. You know, babies comes out of the water and, you know, you bring them up to the surface and they, you know, they take their first breath. But it's, they're not upset generally. Yeah. It's kind of like, whoa, what happened? And, you know, they're often really alert, um, looking around. And, yeah, they, they look a little bit more bluey purple for that first, you know, minute or two. Yeah. But they're fine right we know it can take babies we know how long it takes babies to actually transition right to having you know the the same oxygen saturation as an adult and it's quite a while Mm -hmm. um and if they're screaming in the first minute they're gonna get there faster (laughs) than if they're not but they're still getting there so they often lose an extra point on that apgar score for color Mm -hmm. um but everything else is fine um, and of course, if it's not, then we're going to be, you know, intervening. And of course. Yeah, Screaming. you guys are keeping yeah. an eye on it regardless. So absolutely. Okay. And then I just had some questions from Twitter. Um, yeah, sure. Someone asked, in your experience, what is one thing that seems to make the birthing process go more smoothly or quickly for first time moms? Hmm. Is there anything? <laughs> so literature-wise, like evidence-wise, there really isn't. Um, you can't fool genetics, mm-hmm. right? You can't you can't circumvent the process of baby being well flexed in a good position, entering the pelvis at the right angles. Yeah. Um, you know, none of that stuff we can do much about prenatally. Um, so I think I think the best thing for people to do is to educate themselves. Um, make sure you're asking, you know, all the questions that you need to ask. Mm-hmm. Make sure you you know the data um, from your care providers, clinic from your care provider themselves, from the location you're giving birth at. We have statistics. We have the born database. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the process for which the public can access the born data, but I guarantee you, your care provider has it, the hospital has it, 
so you might have to be irritating <laughs> and <laughs> and you know advocate for yourself to get the data but it exists um and i think it's worth asking about you know, if you're wanting to give birth without an epidural and without being induced you might want to look at the facility you're going to how many people at that hospital have babies without epidurals mm, interesting you know, how many inductions happen there because for many hospitals you know their their epidural rates are above 90 percent you know you may get a nurse who's never had somebody give birth with a first baby without pain relief so you know i think it's it's important it's important to to look at that data because it may it may change where you want to give birth it might change who you want for your care provider and the other thing i was talking about was a doula um I think I, I know they can be expensive um, and that that is quite prohibitive for some people. Um, yes. But for those who can afford it or who can access kind of, you know, sliding scale or low cost doulas, there, there are some kind of doula groups who, who take on clients who can't necessarily afford a doula. Um, I never knew that. Yeah. So, I mean, often it's in very specific circumstances, like... Um, you know, a person who's, who's, who's lost their partner, either, you know, via, you know, them, them leaving or, you know, a yeah, different family, you know, yeah, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that are beyond our control or, you know, people with lots, you know, many other kids who don't have somebody to take them to the hospital when they're in labor. So there, there are those programs available. I think early labor is... <laughs> a thing that people have a really hard time wrapping their head around. And in a first pregnancy, first birth, first labor, early labor can take a long time. Yes. Um, and be normal, right? And if we try to hurry that process, then we end up intervening earlier than we need to, and that leads to more interventions down the line. So the longer we can leave early labor kind of undisturbed, the, the better. better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And early labor can be hard, right? People, you know, you can be having pretty strong contractions that are irregular, but un- really uncomfortable. And your midwife can't stay with you during early labor. Yeah, so you don't want to be admitted okay, to the hospital in early labor, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, because once, you know, the, the data on that is pretty clear. Once we admit you, we start intervening, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, you know, that data is the same for no matter who the healthcare practitioner is, whether it's right. a midwife or an OB or a family doc. Once you're admitted, you're on the clock because it's a hospital, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they don't want to, you know, you don't need to be one centimeter in a room. So I think, yeah, like the doulas, the, a doula in that early phase is, is so critical to, you know, a first baby and just providing that support, providing the reassurance that no, mm-hmm. no, like this is still normal. No, it's not time to call. No, it's not time to go to the hospital yet. You know, we really need to make sure they're, you know, every four to five minutes, lasting a minute, that pattern's happening for an hour. Most doulas are really good at knowing when to call. You know, That's good wife. to hear. Yeah, That's good to, to say hear. like, I think we're in labor now. I don't know that I've ever been called by a doula at an inappropriate time so Um, yeah there's so much data supporting doulas like it for so many reasons but yeah yeah. (laughs) and it's 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 so tricky because part of the thing that makes them so effective is that they aren't they aren't affiliated with the place you're going to give birth yeah but if we wanted them available to everybody 
you'd have to make them affiliated yes and then i think i think we'd see the data change i think yeah i think we would because there's just something about having that person who is is only there their entire purpose of being there is to support you and to support your partner and to give you space to make choices and give you information if you need it and you know they've got they've got they've got no agenda they've got no clinical you know uh things to distract them yeah they have nothing they have to worry about like monitoring you or doing anything it's just you and what you need and your partner and what they need and yeah yeah, it's and and midwives you know are fabulous um and you know some of our our roles do overlap with with that of a doula we do provide midwives do tend to provide lots of emotional and physical support in labor but if you need counter pressure for every contraction um i'm eventually gonna have to let go of your hips because i gotta listen to your baby and i gotta do your blood pressure and i need to administer your next dose of penicillin and you know like there are certain things that having that extra pair of willing hands is just so amazing for yeah yeah no that's so true Um, and we did talk about like your role, but if uh, mom needs a C-section, do you then just take a supporting role for the surgery or how does that work? For sure. Yeah. So there's kind of two cesareans, right? The one is a planned and one is an unplanned. Yeah. Um, for a planned cesarean, uh, clients are often admitted under, they're, un- they're admitted under the OB and often the midwife will come once either the client has called them to kind of confirm the time that the, the c-section is starting right um, or somebody you know from nursing calls and says hey you can come on in and then often you know the midwife will come they'll say hi to you know the client to the client's partner um and they will often accompany client into the or for uh when they put in the spinal they prefer spinals for cesareans everybody prefers an awake cesarean so often the midwives there when they place that and they kind of wait around um often they're sitting up close to the client's head while they're doing all the prep stuff and then um at my hospital at least they'd say okay you can go get dad and i'd i'd go grab the partner and bring them in and show them where to sit at some hospitals depending on the reason for the cesarean the midwives are the primary care provider for baby from birth right Uh, so they're there to receive baby, dry them off, make sure, you know, give them a quick head to toe, look over, make sure everything's fine and bring them uh, to the parents. Um, at other hospitals, they require a physician to be there for baby at the moment of birth. And then once they kind of do that head to toe check, then they essentially say, okay, they're all yours. And <laughs> during labor, it's a little bit different because if we're really concerned about your baby and we're doing kind of a, an emergency cesarean, mm-hmm. um, there's going to be more people in that room and the midwife is essentially, you know, just there for support. Yeah. Um, or, or as part of, the, you know, the bigger kind of pediatric neonatal team. Right. Um, Cause of course midwives are trained in neonatal resuscitation and in, in some, especially rural and remote locations um, yeah. have quite a big role to play um, in, in any resuscitation that needs to happen and so yeah so if it's if it's a cesarean in labor then often the midwife is there doing doing the exact same things coming in with you know the client into the or being there while they prep 
going to get the partner and then you know once everybody's happy with baby you know continuing on and um and then it's basically the same it's the same after that yeah is admitted under ob while she's in a hospital yeah um so the obstetric care or the, the obstetric team is taking care of you know the medical needs of the birthing parent whereas baby is generally as long as they are well admitted under midwifery so you know the midwife is still writing the you know discharge orders is still doing the follow-up um they're just not um doing that medical care for for the parent while they're there but then once once they are discharged from the hospital they're discharged back into the care of the midwife and we take yes. over again yeah yep. makes sense and you talked about this like kind of but do you stay overnight through the whole labor if it's very long i already know the answer to this but somebody asked I so. sure do <laughs> of course uh we're there you know from until your baby's born Depending on what happens, and again, the uh, kind of what midwives are and aren't allowed to do at the, at the hospital where they have privileges, right? Um, they may go home to sleep, right? So at my hospital, we could run inductions, but we didn't necessarily have to stay at the beginning if the person wasn't in labor yet, right? Um, so we could, you know, set them up with with orders, then the nurses would look after the clients. Uh, you know, until they were actually in active labor, in which case we'd come back. So that means, you know, people are like, oh, do you have to go? Well, if I go now and I sleep for 12 hours, <laughs> I can be here when you're actually in labor. Exactly. Or I can sit here and stare at you while nothing's happening. <laughs> and then somebody else has to come in the morning, right? So, so yes, if you're in active labor, you know, your midwife is there. If your midwife can't look after you once you've had an epidural and you get an epidural and you're comfortable and it's still some time from birth, they will likely not stick around. They will probably go to the sleep room or head home to sleep and then be called back for the birth. Right. Um, But otherwise, absolutely. Most practice groups have policies and procedures around sleep and Mm -hmm. relieving their colleagues. For most people, it's about 24 hours. So if you've been up for 24 hours, another midwife comes and takes over. And I always told my clients, listen, I know you want me here, but you don't want me here if I'm tired. That's right? exactly what mine said to me when, yeah. well, she, she you stayed. You want a fresh midwife, I Yes. <laughs> mine st- yeah. was, so I, I got admitted under one of my team and mm-hmm. she had hit her 24 hours at about midnight. I got admitted at like 8 p.m. So I had her oh. for a couple hours. Then she switched over with another one from my team. She yep. stayed all the way till baby was born. And that was about 12 hours. And then she yep. had been up all night, right? So she's yep. like, okay, baby's born. You're sewn up. Everything's good. I'm passing you off to this other midwife. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Because exactly, like, I'm tired and you don't want me to do the rest of the care like it's better if I sleep and I'm like a hundred percent like if it was me I would go home and sleep to you too like yeah yeah. and you know it's 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 hard because often they don't want to go home of course not you know if you're eight nine centimeters and they've been with you you for 18 hours they want to see your baby be born too yeah and that's Um, so hard it's so hard um but but they gotta sleep because you know you're one of multiple clients uh you know that they have do and they've all got to be rested because you know your your midwives function as a team Mm -hmm. and and they all have to be taking care of themselves so that they can take care of you 
Exactly. It's just like how when you become a parent, you also need to get rest time. <laughs> yes. So that you can yep. take care of your child. So it's all it all comes yeah. around. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. And uh, someone else asked, uh, are there any methods you'd recommend for non-medicated pain management? I guess that you find most effective or have yeah. seen worked well? Absolutely. So number one on my list is water. Um, mm -hmm. I like to call water the midwife's epidural. Um, the only <laughs> like thing that. that is more effective than water in labor is an epidural. It is amazing. Uh occasionally a person really does not like the water mm -hmm. um and we can't always predict who those people are going to be beforehand like you know i've had people be like i am going to labor in the water and i'm going to have a water birth and they you know we get to the birth center the tub's all filled up and they stick their toe in and they're like nope <laughs> oh, okay i guess that's not working um so water 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 if you have access to water use it um most hospitals even if they won't uh if they don't support water birth will often have tubs or showers yeah mm -hmm. yeah and so even if you're not going to give birth in the tub labor in the tub and yeah. even if you're planning to get an epidural later stay in the tub for you know as, as long, long as, as you can. can yeah um you know we know that early epidurals often lead to oxytocin augmentation um and, you know, so the further you can get without that epidural, you know, it, the, better, the better really for you and baby. Yeah. yeah. For, for the most part, I'd say. Yeah. Of course. Yes. There are always exceptions. Like none of us are going to leave somebody suffering. Just be like, no, no we have to dilate one more centimeter. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're if you're motivated to avoid, um, you know, as many interventions as possible. Yes. Um, then delaying that epidural um, is 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 one one thing you can do to yeah. kind of lessen the chances of more interventions um and yeah so water and then the other one is the tens machine um oh, yeah, i've heard good things about oh, it i had never seen a tens machine until i came to ottawa and my very first experience with a tens machine was a first labor uh who was planning to give birth at the hospital um and they paged and I was really unsure listening because we listen when people page we often listen to a couple contractions on the phone mm -hmm. and it gives us you know we're timing them because often people are like oh they're every three minutes and we time them and they're not every three minutes every <laughs> six minutes and we're like no um or you know oh it's lasting a minute and we're like oh is it done yeah okay that was 30 seconds like you need to download a timer because yes <laughs> you can't you can't, you know things happen um so we often listen and with this client I was just <clears throat> I couldn't tell if this was like an active labor sounding client or if this was early labor um so I looped my preceptor in um on the phone and she was like you know what I think we should go and assess her so we get there we come in the house and we're like you know where, where where's the client and her partner's like oh she's you know she's in the bathroom on the toilet and we're like okay mm because <laughs> most people don't labor on the toilet no until their baby's getting very low in their pelvis because yeah. then it's the most comfortable place to be most people don't gravitate to the toilet in early <laughs> so we get in the bathroom we check the heartbeat everything's perfect um and then we say you know we'd, we'd like to we'd like they're like her contractions are coming frequently she's not 
making too much noise through them, but you can tell by feeling the belly. Yeah, um, that she is. How strong in... contractions are. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, a, a, a belly that feels like your forehead when during a contraction is a strong contraction. Um, so we're feeling her belly and we're like, okay, like these are like every two and a half minutes. They're lasting, you know, you know 75 seconds. These are strong contractions. We're like, we'd really like to check you. And she was like, yeah, for sure. Uh, and she was like nine and a half centimeters, you know, and her baby's head was so, was so low. We're like, uh, so <laughs> if you want a hospital birth, we need to go like 10 minutes ago and we might call an ambulance because if your water breaks, you're probably going to be pushing soon and we don't want you to have your baby in your car. Oh my um, God. <laughs> and they ended up, you know, we had like a big discussion uh, and they ended up deciding to stay home uh, and have, you know, a beautiful home birth like an hour and a bit later. And we credited it to the TENS machine. So the TENS, it, it, caveat, that is not what happens for everybody. Yeah, of course <laughs> that not. That was just my very first time that I'd ever seen a TENS used. So a TENS, TENS stands for transcutaneous electronic nerve stimulation. Um, and it's kind of like we're tricking the brain. TENS machines, often people use them in physiotherapy. Uh, they they yes. literally just send an electric current into the skin. It does not feel nice. Okay, this is not like, uh, we're putting the TENS machine on, it feels like a massage. No, no, no. 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 Um, it's irritating. It is. It kind of feels like the pins and needles sensation. I've had it before, yeah. In. Yeah. And it's like not something you associate with, this is going to be great in labor, right? No. <laughs> um, but... The current kind of theories on pain are that there needs to be a, a sufficient amount of pain stimulus to actually make the jump to the spinal cord to head up to the pain or to the brain and be registered as pain. Right. Um, so if we can kind of short circuit that process and kind of trick the body into believing that the pain there isn't a high enough, you know, stimulus to cause a pain reaction then we can kind of circumvent some of it. So what I often saw over the course of, you know, the couple of years that I watched people labor with these TENS machines is that often it makes the peak of the contraction, which is the strongest part, right? They, they build up slowly up to this peak that's really strong. And then, yeah. you know, they come down like a wave. So often it brings that peak down a bit. So people don't experience quite a strong peak. And it often takes away the kind of beginning of the contraction as it just starts to get uncomfortable and it takes away the end. So mm. it makes the contractions feel shorter and less intense for most people. And it was a question I asked every single person who ever paged me in early labor. Are you wearing a TENS? Do you have a TENS machine on? Because if they're telling me, if they've got the TENS machine on and they're telling me their contractions are every three and a half minutes and they're lasting a minute, their contractions might be every two and a half minutes lasting 90 seconds right because it's and they're shortening just not it. feeling yeah they're just not feeling the beginning and the tail end of them um, and as you know having been in labor you really can't relax between contractions until all the pressure's gone right no you're riding no. the wave down and going okay 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 and then <laughs> oh, finally it's gone right exactly um, so if that end comes quicker you know you're getting more rest in between which is um, amazing so amazing um i will say some people hate it so similar to the bath some people are like yeah yeah yeah. i'm gonna use a tense machine and they put it on. <laughs> they're like get 
this thing off of me. What I say to people, whether it's with TENS or the water or nitrous oxide, give it give it like at least five contractions yeah or don't just you can yeah yeah to see if it's gonna work because especially with the tens that irritating prickly feeling is it fades right so we turn it up to the point where it's irritating but not painful and over time with you know the endorphins your body's making um, and it's going to help release more endorphins, that prickliness is going to fade into the background a little bit and just provide, it's just like a little bit of distraction. And then when the contractions come, there's often a button on them that you push and it changes the way that the electrical signal goes. Okay. Um, and most people love that. You know, you can tell they're having contraction because they're hitting the button, you know, before you can hear them start to breathe differently. It, it can be a really incredible thing. And the best time to put it on is in early labor. Because if you're thinking about early labor, you're having these mild contractions that are infrequent, they're irregular, or they're stronger, but they're still going to be irregular. They're still going to be infrequent. If you can decrease the peak of them and make them feel shorter, that means your body can do the work it needs to do and you can sleep in between them. Yeah, you're conserving like energy. Yeah. Exactly. If they're every seven minutes, but you're cutting a minute off that, then you get eight minutes to sleep instead of seven. So I always, 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 always recommend it um, that people like think strongly about the tens, especially for a first labor. I really saw a huge difference between people who were using them in early labor um, and people who weren't. I wish I had known that like I, it's right? something I'm going to think about now like going into like a future pregnancy because that sounds amazing I have to say though like during physio I didn't particularly oh. like the feeling of that machine <laughs> um I had to do it on my leg once and that was like such a weird sensation like it's a bizarre feeling it's like an um, involuntary muscle contraction almost. Like that's yes, <laughs> kind of yes. what it feels like. But we don't, it's not that strong. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. Right? We're not, we're not, not trying to do that. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I should say, cool. I didn't say where it goes and people probably are like, where does this thing go? It goes yeah. on the back. Often uh, the, there's two sets of pads and they kind of go parallel on the body. The bottom two are kind of right above um like on either side of the spine, right above the gluteal cleft, which is the bum crack. So they go there. And then the other ones kind of are up six centimeters ish um, and kind of outside where the other ones are just up a bit. So it kind of looks like a, a little V or a W. Um, okay. And that's where they go. And that's where um, essentially that's where the nerves that innervate the uterus run into the spine so that they, yeah, they're just providing that that sensation and honestly i'm so mad i didn't know about this with my babies i had back labor with all three of them yeah we're all apparently perfectly positioned no issues <laughs> with the births but just horrible 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 back labor and i really wish <laughs> i'd known that the tents existed um because i would have i would have tried it yeah yeah like i had back labor pain as well so i just feel like that so sounds fun. amazing like right <laughs> anything i would have tried anything to get rid of back labor anything. oh yes oh yes and the last question from twitter was and this is an interesting one how do you handle conversations about the flu shot vaccines or like the gestational diabetes test 
um, when you might disagree with what the mom or parents' choices are. This is something we didn't really touch on earlier, but in in Ontario, midwives are kind of required by law and required by our college to provide informed consent, which differs a bit from most care professionals. Um, it's actually kind of written into what we have to provide and not not informed consent informed choice so there's a Mm -hmm. difference between informed consent and informed choice informed consent is we are going to do this thing to you do you consent yes right informed choice is this thing is an option we can do here's a reason i would recommend it here's a reason some people think they don't want to do it here's what happens if you choose to do it here's what happens if you choose not to yeah what do you want to do Mm -hmm. um I think many people are not used to being in a position where they're actually asked what they want to do about their medical care. Yeah, sadly. Right? So that is a huge, a huge thing in midwifery care. It's one of the pillars of midwifery care is providing that informed choice. What that means is that sometimes people are going to choose things outside of the recommendations. Yeah. And that isn't always easy. I will preface that because this is a thing that um, physicians often ask midwives about. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you do? Right? Like, how can you support people who are making bad choices? Mm -hmm. Right? That's, that's how they view it. And and the thing I always, always said to my physician colleagues was most people make a safe choice. You know, this person's pregnant with a baby that they want to have, you know, they haven't got to 37 weeks pregnancy not wanting this baby you know it not wanting their baby to be healthy most people are not making choices they might be making choices against recommendations but that ultimately are not unsafe you know what i mean um, exactly yeah yeah like there's a there's a, a huge difference between choosing something that's unsafe like if your baby if you had a footling breech baby right that's presenting with their feet first uh, and you wanted to have it, you know, a home birth? No, <laughs> you you can't do that. Um, you know, we a midwife would not attend that birth because it's not safe. Yeah. But most people, if you explain what the risks are, are going to choose the thing that's going to keep them and their baby safe. For people who are are choosing care like way outside of recommendations. Um, that, mm-hmm. that may actually be unsafe and expose them and their baby to, you know, extreme Harm. risk or even their mm-hmm. care providers, right? Exposing uh, their care provider to, to risk. We have very serious conversations with people. Lots of care providers don't love talking about the scary things that can happen. But sometimes you have to say, you know, if you make this choice there's this percentage risk that your baby could die. Most people don't want that. But risk is is so different to every person. You know, certain people may not see a certain percentage of risk as being all that risky. But it never feels like it's terribly risky until it happens to you. Exactly. Um, you know, one in a hundred seems like small odds, but when that's your baby. It doesn't uh, feel so small at that point. No, no. So, so most people are keen to avoid, uh, you know, the risks that they can. Um, so yeah, having really serious, frank conversations with people and actually sitting down with the literature and mm-hmm. um, what the recommendations are and why the recommendations exist and 
you know, what's going to happen if um, sometimes we get another care provider involved. Um, so whether that's another midwife who might have a similar conversation with them and maybe just word it slightly differently, right. whether it's doing a, a consult with an obstetrician uh, to have an OB go over the risks with a, with a person. You know, we, we do all those things. We document it very well. We make sure that, you know, we are documenting that, you know, I recommended this because of this, according to these regulations and these guidelines, client is choosing this. Client yeah. understands the risks of X, Y, Z, understands the chance of catastrophic outcomes are, you know, this percentage. Yeah, so it, it does happen. It's much less yeah frequent that it's a serious thing than people realize think. yeah yeah i think it yeah. definitely that's good good to hear for society yeah. <laughs> like when it comes to the flu shot right am i gonna tell people that you know it's recommended by the sogc that everybody every pregnant person receive a flu shot because x y and z they're at increased risk of this yes i'm gonna tell them that if they decide not to get the flu shot does it put them at an increased risk yes but is that risk fairly reasonable? Yes. You know, if they, they want to have that footling breach at home, that is a much greater risk, you know, mm-hmm. in serious risk to them and their baby. And mm-hmm. that's going to be a much larger discussion. You know? Yeah, you kind of have to look at the situation. And I mean, all you can do is present them with the information. But obviously, if it's a situation that's putting them, baby, and you as a provider at risk... Yeah. Uh, that is like a whole other situation that needs to be discussed thoroughly and yeah well and sometimes (laughs) it's a medical ethics thing right like yeah people have choices people it's their body they do and that's like part of the reason I do this podcast is so that people can learn about different things that happen in birth they can be familiar with it and they can kind of go forward and have more information about their own body and their choices and it's why I write my blog too because I try to provide information that people can access but they often don't or they don't know where to look for that information but it's stuff that can help they don't even know what questions to ask well, and that's that's part of the problem, yeah. Or they or they're scared to ask certain questions yes. in case they seem like in case they yeah. their provider interprets it the wrong way. Or there's so many yeah. different situations, right? And just to close off, is there any advice you'd either give to like a new mom or a, a laboring mother, someone who's about to go into labor? Any piece of advice you can think of, really? Yeah trust the process Mm -hmm. um you know when it when it all boils down most healthy low-risk people will experience a healthy low-risk pregnancy and have a healthy low-risk low-intervention birth humans are still on the planet for a reason (laughs) that reason is that birth is generally works out yeah um you know we wouldn't be here if if it didn't and you know physiologically our our bodies know how to do it just like they know how to digest food and breathe right it's it's a hormonal feedback loop and your body's gonna do it (laughs) believe in the fact that we're here on the planet and most of the time if this works out okay and i think i think in that along with trust the process is uh if you have a care provider that you can trust so important it's huge Mm -hmm. because 
it's it's quite the dichotomy birth right you're so incredibly vulnerable but so incredibly strong at the same time and it's um, amazing <laughs> it's it's incredible but if you can if you can go through that process with someone you trust whose advice who, who you know has your best interest in mind uh, wants the best for you and your baby wants wants the birth for you that you want for yourself I, I think that's such a beautiful gift to give yourself is you know the, the gift of somebody who's in your corner whether that be you know a midwife if you can or a, a doula or both but just yeah trust yourself and you know get into a, a trusting relationship with your care provider um, so you can so you can lean on them and trust them too yeah that's always the advice that I kind of leave these podcasts with is it's so important to trust your provider I write that in almost all of my blog posts I feel like oh, but do you yeah like it's <laughs> well, so, so true funny. I know but yeah. it's like my biggest thing is like that is I so important that in advance and say that on purpose no no I do, I, I do really think it is um oh, it's so important it's so important yeah it's it just makes this uh experience so much better I think and everyone that I've talked to so far in the podcast who's had a good relationship with their provider, it's really reflected in their birth experience as well. So oh, it, you know, so yeah, it goes to show that that matters. And I know in some situations I've tweeted about this before, like obviously people who live in rural areas, there's slim yeah, pickings for sure. providers, right? And yeah. I know that can be hard, but uh, yeah. if you have the choices try and make the best one that you can because it's going to make Absolutely. your experiences so much better. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I'm a little biased towards midwives. Um, me too. Me but, too. <laughs> but I think like I know people who have had incredible experiences with OBs. Yes, me too. Experiences with family dogs who practice yep. obstetrics. You know, this is not, this is not a one care provider is best for everybody. It's not. You need to choose who you're comfortable with. You need to choose where you're most comfortable. I tell people all the time, I don't want you to give birth at home if you're not comfortable giving birth at home, right? Like, I don't want you to give birth with a midwife if you're uncomfortable, like, if that doesn't make you comfortable. If if that makes you nervous, please don't have a midwife. (laughs) That's not going to help. Like, you need to, you need to do your research. You need to talk to people you know you need to ask the hard questions of your care provider before you say yes to them if like you said if if you can Um, yeah and you you really need to you you need to you need to trust them yeah most important thing thanks for listening to the elephant in the womb podcast if you like this podcast make sure to show us some love whatever way you can like, comment, and subscribe. You can also visit the website at www.elephantinthewomb.ca and subscribe to the blog email list for blog and podcast updates.